The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Let's pray together. Father, as we saw so clearly in your word this morning, we are on both sides of this transaction, we're in ourselves completely incapable of doing what needs to happen. In order for there to be illumination and real sight, in order for us to actually know, not just in our minds, but in our hearts, what you have revealed to us here in your word, Father, your spirit has to come. He has to work. He has to flex his power. This has to be more than just the words of a man to other men. It has to be the words of a father to his children, the words of a shepherd to his sheep. So, Father, we ask you to come and do that now. Take this precious word and plant it within our hearts. We ask it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So as I mentioned to you this morning, about a month ago, I think it was exactly a month ago, as we prepared to come together to the Lord's table, I called you each to consider the possibility of fasting for a week and asking God to prepare your heart. And we've done this from time to time over the years. But, but I realized that for many of us, particularly those of us that grew up in Baptist churches, we may not know a whole lot about what fasting is. Where's my mind meant to go? What, what's my expectation? Are there rules for how this is meant to look? And I've got to be honest, I grew up with a mindset and, and an understanding of fasting that really it was, it was almost just like a uh, ribbon around your finger to remind you to pray. My whole understanding of, of fasting never extended anywhere beyond, okay, if I don't eat lunch and I don't eat dinner and I don't eat breakfast, that probably frees up two and a half hours in there. Now I've got time to pray. But the reality is we've all got time. We waste many more hours than that on much less significant things than, than eating. And again, I say, I. Had his mindset, well, maybe it's like a ribbon around my finger so that every time I feel a hunger pang and my hand reaches out to grab something from the cupboard, it's meant to be a reminder, oh, no, no, I'm supposed to be praying right now. But the reality is you all have iPhones with alarms. And so you don't need time. You don't need more time and you don't need another reminder because the reality is many of you have set reminders on your phone to pray and we blow right through them. And many of us have set aside time each morning or evening or whatever God would have you, and, and we squander it. So there's got to be something a whole lot more than this, but I've not preached about fasting. I, I looked back to see when was the one time I preached a sermon on fasting. That was April of 2020 when we came to that passage there in, in Mark's gospel. And the reality is that many of you were not here three years ago, more than three years ago, and Beyond that, my own understanding of fasting has certainly changed and grown since then, not just from study of the word, but just from my own practice and, and spiritual growth. And so, as I told you this morning, I came to the conclusion after having conversations with many of you individually and many of you teachers with regards to the questions that you were being asked in your class, came to the conclusion that before we got back into Leviticus after this couple of week hiatus, that we would we'd work through just some passages in scripture and ask God to show us what is, what is this spiritual discipline that seems to be taken for granted as a thing we just do? What is this thing all about? You'll, you'll probably remember that I, I told you when I called you to that fast a month ago, I said, I don't know what God's gonna do in your life. I don't know how God's gonna work because the reality is the Holy Spirit isn't predictable. This isn't punch and play. This isn't I push A7 and I'm guaranteed to get a Twix bar out of the machine. 
And so it's going to take more than one week. There's not, I mean, if you told me just you got to pick one passage, I would probably go to Jesus teaching about why his disciples didn't fast while he was here and while they would fast once he went back to the Father. If you said you only have one week, but, but we don't. It's one of the beauties of what I, how I view Sunday night. I think God's given us a little more flexibility in terms of where we go in our studies. And so I want to take advantage of that. So we're going to look at, I don't know how many yet, probably four, maybe six, somewhere in there. Just little, little vignettes, little, little passages in Scripture that I think maybe will give us a well-rounded picture. Because there's not just one answer. Somebody says, what's fasting all about? I can't just give you one answer. Certainly can't give it to you in, in one concise sentence. So that's, that's my prayer for us. Now the reality is that this morning I've got to do some setting the stage. I've got to address some things as we move towards the text. So I ask you to be somewhat patient as we do a little bit of a... A little bit of a survey of some, some passages to prepare our hearts so that when we then get to this evening's text, by the way, it's going to be Deuteronomy 8. As we move towards Deuteronomy 8, you, you will have some of the things maybe put out of your mind that might threaten to get in the way so that you can't, you can't hear what's here. As you might imagine, and I've tried to make clear every time we've talked about fasting, this is a spiritual discipline. This is a matter of the spirit. It's not something that's pragmatic. It's not something that's practical. I know that fasting is trendy, that there's fasting that can be done for um, all manner of false spiritual reasons, or that there's fasting that can be done for health or fitness reasons, or fasting that can be done just for clarity of focus or all manner of things. But that, that's not what we're dealing with here. But the reality is that the vast majority of the questions that I got from you guys were on the practical side of things. And that just comes with the territory because we're talking about a very practical and, and physical thing. And so it's not bad that a lot of the questions we had were very practical. And so I thought what we would do first is I'm going to address those as clearly as I can from Scripture. Those more practical, pragmatic things. And, and here's why. I want you to put those aside to be, able to, to be able to deal with them and then put them aside so that maybe then you can actually hear what God's Word has to say. Because here's what I've learned, if nothing else. Whenever we call Christian people to hard things, we have got an incredible ability to give all the reasons why we can't do it. The Bible's straightforward about multivarious things like fasting or tithing or divorce or all manner of things. The Bible's just straightforward about it. And then you sit with people and the answer is always, yeah, but. And it's always some practical answer. There's always some pragmatic answer. And so, again, my hope is to get those off the table so then you can focus in on what God has to say. And so one of the questions that I get from people is, is it safe? Is it actually safe to go without food? Yes, I see your face already. I got that question. I'm not a doctor and I, I don't know your health, but I see all throughout the history of the church and all throughout Scripture, God's people fasting. People of all ages and of all body types, fasting. I see children along with their parents being called to fast. And I, I know the objection that people might have, but these children aren't yet believers. What about if I got children in my house and they're not, they're not believers? Can I really include them in this discipline of withholding food for spiritual purposes? I don't know. Do you teach your children to pray? Do you teach them to read their Bibles? Do you teach them to sing songs and worship? I've always told you that we as a church, what are we going to do with these little children God's given us? We're going to treat them like Christians. We're going to train them in the spiritual disciplines and we're going to pray with everything we have that God would send his spirit and do something. So, yeah. But as you read through the Bible and you come to these passages where Jesus doesn't say, hey, if you decide to fast, if the Holy Spirit should so call you to fast, if you become a super Christian or a pastor or an elder or a deacon, and then all of a sudden fasting becomes part of your life. No, he says, when you fast, as if it's just a given. And I think that's why we know so little sometimes of, the, of the, what fasting is all about. Because it was just assumed that that was a thing God's people did. Just like when we were studying Leviticus together, and we've got a lot of practical questions about the slaughtering of animals. You just say, you slaughter the animal because they lived in a world where that was just a thing. Everybody knew about it. That seems to be the way the scripture talks about fasting. If you want some more direct details about what this thing looks like, and, and scripture doesn't answer those for you, there is a book. 
It's, it's one of the earliest church documents we have. It's called the Didache. It's really a little short book, but it's, it's church instruction. And they cover all kinds of practical things like fasting, like prayer, like prohibitions against abortion. Things that you might think that the early church wasn't worried about. You, you can find those things there. It's not scripture. It's not inspired. But at least gives you some understanding of how did the early church think about something like this. And what you'll find there is it was ordinary. It was ongoing. It was regular for all of God's people. So the question, next question will be, well, yeah, but for, for how long? For how long should I fast? Well, 40 days. Jesus fasted for 40 days in his humanity. And I don't, I don't know that 40 days is for you. I'm not a doctor. I can't. Should I? Andrew, what would be a good disclaimer at this point? Die at your own risk or something? I don't know. I'm not your doctor. But I guess the point I'm trying to make is for the vast majority of people, you can go a whole lot longer than you think. There used to be a guy that I loved on the Internet, and I don't so much love him anymore because I think he proved to probably be a worse guy than I thought. There's a guy called Mr. Beast, and if you've ever spent 10 minutes with me, I probably told you about some of this guy's videos because I thought it was so cool. But this guy would do these videos where he would give away a Tesla. And he would say, okay, everybody put your hand on the Tesla, and the last person to drop off, you get this car for free. These dudes would go for days and days and days, sometimes without food, always without bathroom breaks, because they saw value in the prize. And I'm afraid that for so many of us, the reason that we believe we can't fast or the reason that we believe our fasts are, are meant to be kept within these short, very comfortable periods of time is because we don't value the prize. We don't see any kind of real benefit in this. And it's so obvious that God has built us for something like this. Look, guys, what do you think body fat's for? It's for periods like this. But we, we become a people that are so unwilling to suffer. Oftentimes so unwilling to do hard things for the sake of spiritual benefit. They were always just looking for a way out. We're always just looking for an excuse. So I don't know. Go 40 days. Go four days. Go four minutes. I don't care. I'll leave that between you and God, but my point is, don't always look for an exit. Don't come to God and say, God, I will give you this much and no further. You come to God and you say, God, you've given me all the days of my life. Which of these days would you see fit to allow me to abstain from food and or drink? You lay it all on the table, then allow him to show you. If you fall out, we'll pick you up. How about that? The other question is, do I have to fast from food? I know there's people that fast from all kinds of things. Generally, though, in Scripture, what we found and the general definition of fasting is the abstinence, abstinence from all or some food or drink for a set period of time. That's almost always the way we see it talked about in Scripture, unless otherwise indicated. It's almost always food. There are those few times when drink was included. Like you remember the, the king of Nineveh in Jonah 3. He said that nobody was to drink any food, eat any food, or drink any drink. It's a sign of repentance to God. There was the 40 days and 40 nights of Moses going without food and drink. That had to be some type of supernatural something happening there because I don't think your body lasts more than a few days without water. Then there is the passage in 1 Corinthians 7 where Paul talks about couples fasting from coming together in intimacy for a set period of time for the express purpose of allowing themselves opportunity to pray. But generally, whenever we find fasting talked about in scripture, it's talking about abstaining from food. It's, it's a regular pattern for God's people of withholding food from themselves for a period of days and nights as God has, as God has directed them. And I think this is because of the universality of, of food throughout all ages. Men have needed food. God created this way. Have you ever, ever wondered why? Why don't we still eat through our belly buttons? Why didn't he just hook us up with our own personal IV or feeding tube? Why didn't he make us where we needed food at all? Clearly that God's got some purpose for this thing. And food is the universal need of mankind since the very beginning. Since before the fall, Adam and Eve there in the garden, they had food to eat. And so clearly that seems to be a thing that God has given us for the express purpose of catching our attention. But again, with regards to just as with regards to the time, 
With regards to the mode, I, I leave that between you and God. That's the matter that you and he must work out. And that brings me to the last of these fairly practical things. The question that I would very often be asked is, am I allowed to talk to other people about it? Is it okay if anybody else knows that I'm fasting? And this, this is a, a good question because it seems to come directly from Scripture, directly from the, the teaching of Christ in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6, 16, he says, And when you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now I have a sneaking suspicion God's probably going to bring us back to that text to do a whole, a whole sermon on it. But I would just point out to you that I think that Jesus' focus here is on the looking gloomy. And, and the disfiguring of, of their faces and, and the desperate desire by these hypocrites to be seen by others. Because the reality is that corporate fasts were pretty common, both in Scripture and throughout the history of church life. In addition to this, there's no way for you to go without eating, without your family and closest friends recognizing. You go on an extended fast of more than about a week, probably the people around you are going to start sensing that you're losing weight. They're going to, they're going to notice these things. And so really, I think it's a question of the heart. So you've got to ask God before you go to a brother or sister and, and engage them in any conversation about your personal fast. And I've been guilty of breaking this. This is, this is an area I fail more often than not. You've got to ask God, would you examine my heart? Would you reveal to me whether there is sinful hypocrisy in me revealing to somebody that I'm fixing to enter into this fast? But as, as best I can tell as a general rule, there's nothing expressly sinful about going to a brother and saying, hey, would you fast with me? Or would you pray for me during this fast that I wouldn't give up? That God would come by his spirit and do something in my life? Again, because I point you back to the fact that it's just like other spiritual disciplines. Again, think about it. Would you ever believe that you had lost out on God's blessing if your wife and children walked in and found you reading the Bible or praying? Would you feel bashful about people knowing that you give joyfully to the Lord or that you show up in this place and do corporate worship? Of course not. It's in the same flow of teaching that Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be done in secret. In verse 6, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. It's a warning against hypocrisy and a desire to be, to be seen. But does that mean that it's sinful to pray corporately? Does that mean that it's sinful for you ever to hear the prayers that I offer up to the Lord? It's about the heart of the matter. It's about your desires. My desire to be seen as some pious man, some, some, some stalwart of the faith that, that really, really is doing hard things for Christ Jesus. Because the reality is that you can do all these things in secret and still be in sin. I promise you I've given in secret and completely robbed myself of any blessing because of a heart of hypocrisy or haughtiness or pride. And I've certainly spent plenty of time on my knees before the Lord in secret prayer and wrecked it. It's the same way with fasting. I believe we can pray together corporately as a people, each of us knowing what's happening, encouraging each other, praying for each other, even coming back afterwards and talking about the things that God has done during this time with a right heart, just as we can do it in secret and do it completely wrong. But here is one warning that I will give you. You must never ever, ever look over the fence into your neighbor's yard. Judge your neighbor for whether he fasts or he doesn't fast or he feasts or he doesn't feast. Isn't that what Paul says? Romans 14, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. I will call for... I'm, Obviously, I'm setting the stage. I'm going to continue calling us to fast as a people with specific purposes in mind. But if I catch one of you eating during this corporate fast, my job is not to look at you with a knowing glance. Just as your job isn't to look at your neighbor with a knowing glance, you don't know what that man and his master are doing. You have no clue what's going on in his life. And so we've got to fight that urge. You want to know how you can ruin your private fast? Look with haughty eyes at your neighbor as he eats a subway. 
so we don't look over our neighbor's fence. Okay, so, wow, that took more time than I hoped, but can we just put all that stuff over there? Just put all that practical stuff aside. And I guess the long and short of what I'm trying to say is, yes, you should fast. Yes, you can fast. And yes, you can probably go a whole lot longer than you've ever imagined. So that when the devil tries to use those things to convince you that you can't do hard things, and that somehow you're excluded from this kind of thing, just put it aside. You can go sort those details out with God later, but I don't want you to miss out on the blessing of what he has for us. And the reality is that fasting is about a whole lot more than physical things. 1 Timothy 4.7 says this, Train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. So I suppose we need to start with the understanding that fasting is a physical act with a spiritual aim. It's a physical act with a spiritual aim done by people with their hearts set on unseen things and their eyes fixed on heaven. It's very much a practical and a tangible and an, and an outward thing, but the whole thing must be done with a spiritual desire for a thing that can never be seen, that, that cannot yet be tasted or touched or, or ground. So the reality is, as we come into our thoughts about fasting, we've got to make sure that we aren't a people with divided desires. It, it's very easy in this day and age when we're told about all the health benefits of fasting fasting it's very easy to come into this thing with this divided thought of well you know i'm going to come into this and if nothing spiritual happens at least i'll lose some fat oh no, you've got to come into this thing with the mindset of i'm dealing with god here this is a spiritual war that i'm engaging in here yes it's physical and yes it's going to get very physical if it goes on for any extended period of time but the reality is my aims are in heaven not here on earth first corinthians 9 24 do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Any of you that have ever been athletes, and particularly those of you that have ever been around any real high-level athletes, world-class type athletes, you know that they run everything in their life through the lens of performance. They're always analyzing their own life to figure out, is this going to make me a better runner, a higher jumper, a stronger hitter, whatever it is. The question is, everything is on the table, not just things that are overtly sinful, not just smoking or drinking or, or, or refusing to train, but things that are otherwise acceptable to the ordinary common man. Is this thing acceptable and helpful to me? This is the same thing we talked about going back to Hebrews 12. How do I run my race? I don't just shed wind, I shed sin. I shed, shed every incumbent. Easy for you to say. Every encumbrance, every weight, everything that would cling to me and make me a slow runner. And so what Paul's saying is, look, that's the way that every kind of runner runs, if you're serious about winning. But I'm not running a physical race to win a physical prize. I'm running a spiritual race. I'm running the race of faith to win an invisible and imperishable reward, a spiritual reward. And so what would you expect him to say then? He says, I'm not like the Olympians. I'm not like the people that are wrestling or that are, that are fighting or that are running. And so I'm not running a physical race. I'm not worried about a physical prize. I'm running a spiritual race for a spiritual prize. What would you expect him to say then about his training? Therefore, I read my Bible. Therefore, I take the Lord's Supper. Therefore, I pray. Therefore, I commune with the saints. You would expect him to start talking about spiritual practices there. Only spiritual things in this spiritual race for the spiritual prize. But that's not what he says. In verse 26, he says, So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and I keep it under control. Lest after I preach to others, I myself would be disqualified. He's talking about wearing down and buffeting and beating and disciplining his own body. It's helpful for us as we move towards this, I promise we'll get there, move towards this text together to recognize that God has made us as spiritual beings in physical bodies and those things are really connected. We're not Gnostics. We don't believe that we are spiritual beings trapped in something that God doesn't care anything about. 
That the whole goal of the Christian life is to escape this body and to escape this planet and go off into some ethereal never-never land. That God made us. He could have made us any way he wanted. But he breathed life into a dirt man. He's made promises that that same dirt is going to be raised to life. And so we are physical beings, spiritual beings and physical bodies. And the things we do in the body, they affect the things of the soul. Even and including things with food. Psalm 104.15 says that God has given us gifts so that we could have wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen his heart. Every Baptist likes to make jokes about um, Elijah um, needing a nap and a, and a snack or something, right? I'm so sad, I wish I could just die. And God comes to the man and he takes, he takes a break, he takes a rest, and he takes some food into himself, and now he's... He's strengthened. That's not a, really a joke, though. We really are affected by the things that go on in our, in our bodies in a very real and, and, and lasting and, and spiritual way. In 1 Corinthians 6.12, and I'll give you if, you, if you want all these cross-references, ask me after, and I'll, and I'll give them to you. But 1 Corinthians 6.12, Paul is, is reciting back to the Corinthians these these, they seem like pithy sayings. There, there's quotation marks at certain points in this that make it clear that Paul's kind of like reciting back to the people the kind of things that they say. 1 Corinthians 6, 12. All things are lawful for me. He's quoting them. All things are lawful for me. Paul says, but not all things are helpful. He quotes, all things are lawful for me. And he responds, but I will not be dominated by anything. He quotes, Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food. He responds to him and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for immorality, but for the Lord. Sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? He's saying the things you do in your body matter. There's going to be a day of destruction just as there's going to be a day of resurrection. But my commitment in this time even as all things are lawful and even as food tastes good and sustains me physically, I won't be dominated by anything. But here's a caveat. As we begin to think about fasting together, you've got to recognize that fasting is not just about self-discipline. It's not just about refusing to be dominated. There were times in my life when I would give up soda or I would give up sweets or I would give up something. And it was nothing other than just to exercise self-control, self-mastery. To prove to myself that I wasn't addicted to something. Now certainly there is a fruit of the spirit called self-control. And, and God exercises that fruit. He, he produces that fruit of self-control. And it becomes evident in fasting. You'll find out if you lack self-control whenever you try to go a day or two days or a week without food. You'll, you'll, it'll be very evident to you. But if we make fasting about nothing more than exercising self-control. And the whole thing just becomes about abstinence. The whole thing becomes about what you can't do. And I'll tell you where that leads. My girls will tell you. Girls, whenever I'm fasting for a long period of time, what do you catch me looking at at my food? Um, well, there you go. Looking at on my phone almost nonstop? Food videos. I lust after food. That's not the point to a fast. But what I find myself doing is the whole thing is just a matter of, of self-control, self, um, self-mastery. And so anything I got to do to get across the finish line, this date that I've checked, I said earlier, how long should you fast? I'll tell you what you shouldn't do. Don't pick some number and make it all about that number. You're dealing with God. My latest fast, I picked a date that I thought God would have. I didn't make it there. God was done working with me, I believed at that point. I wasn't looking for a place to bail. But... If we make this all about just how long do I have to abstain from this thing, you'll become like me, a food luster. There is such a thing. And then it just comes a little more than just a battle of the will. And where does that lead you to? Not only does it lead you to this, this mental gluttony that does harm in and of itself, but then it just leads to pride when you make it to your day. Because who won the battle then? I did. I am strong enough. I'm faithful enough. I have enough personal self-control that I made it to the finish line. And then all of a sudden, you just induced the sin of pride. You, you've heightened the sense of pride, even if nobody else knows about it. 
That's why Paul says in Colossians 2, 21, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they're of no value in stopping the indulgences of the flesh. I will tell you that those times when I sat around and lusted after food and made it all about abstinence, I just went and gorged myself the minute I crossed the finish line. I jumped right back into the sin of gluttony. And so these things, this, this asceticism and beating my body and making it all about self-mastery, that can't be the point. We've got to see that what we're dealing with here, again, is a spiritual matter in a very tangible way. As, as we look back through the, the place that food plays in, in, in redemptive history, I mean, just, I don't know how you would even do this, but if you could do a search, you could do an online search of all the passages in Scripture that reference food, you would be blown away. And I think we're blind to them because they're so common. Again, go back to the Garden of Eden. What did it all begin with? A fruit tree. Go to the end of the story, and what's it all about? Christ and his bride feasting together. What's the ordinance of the church that... Christ has given us as we come together in remembrance of him. It's a meal. How did God move his people from nation to nation wherever he wanted them as he worked out this redemptive plan? Oftentimes with a famine. How did he work with his people as they were there in the wilderness and he was revealing himself and, and providing for them? It was through manna from heaven. Think about the, the Jewish calendar, the the. the way in which their year came and ebbed and flowed with various feasts as the people came in the presence of God. Food plays a tremendous role in the life of God's people. And it's a thing that goes into our mouth and is expelled. Clearly there's something more there. Clearly there's meant to be some spiritual picture that's painted there. And clearly there's something that God's doing as he reveals in our own lives and all through scripture. There's something he's doing with regards to our relationship to the thing that reveals our heart. It reveals our disordered desires. It reveals our constant willingness to trade down. How many times have I traded the God of the universe for a glazed donut? It's just an opportunity. It's just like money or it's just like so many other things. It's just meant to be an opportunity for God to reveal something that I didn't otherwise know was there. That's why Jesus says in John 6, verse 27, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. He goes on in that same discourse to say, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I say this, that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. See, it's about much more than just food. Why do you think God gave you food? Why do you think he gave you drink? To show you something about me. What does the Lord say in Jeremiah 2.13 to his people? He says, these two evils you've committed. You've forsaken me for a fount the fountain of living waters and hewed out cisterns for yourself, broken cisterns that could hold no water. He said, I've given you food and I've given you drink to show you your heart. It's an opportunity to drive you to me to receive these gifts from my hand or to show that you're willing to settle for the dung of this world instead of the God of the universe. I don't ever want to hyper-spiritualize things, but it seems clear to me. That food and drink, just like physical rest and marriage and so many other the good gifts that God's given us in this life, they're meant to drive us beyond this realm and onto the heavenly, looking to unseen things, to reveal to us something about our desires and our appetites and, and our dependence. And so before we move on, very briefly, I suppose, to our text, just one more point that I need to make clear. We've got to have it driven into our hearts and into our minds that fasting is about so much more than just making war on our desires. It's, it's a God-prescribed means for him to change our heart and our affection. If we're not careful, and certainly there is a place in which fasting is us saying something to God. That's, that's true. You've often heard me say that prayer says, excuse me, fasting says with our body what prayer says with our heart or with our mind. That is absolutely true, but you do realize God knows your heart. You don't need to prove anything to God. The reality is that fasting is God's way of molding you. More than anything, you've got to recognize that as you come before God and you are coming to him in prayer, you're coming to him through fasting, that the ultimate goal there is to know him more. And in knowing him more, 
having your desires changed and your desires formed and to be molded into the image of Christ. Again, if you make it all about yourself proving something to God, you lose. So, Deuteronomy 8. We'll do what we can with it and then come back next week. They call that a cliffhanger, Chuck. Let's read these uh, first ten verses. Deuteronomy chapter 8. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains and springs, flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God with the good land that he has given you. I wonder if you caught there in those very earliest of verses, verse 2 and verse 3, how he made reference to his humbling of his people. He said, I led you these 40 years in the wilderness that I might humble you. Then in verse 3, he says to test your heart to see whether you might obey my commandments. Again, God knows the hearts of men. I don't have time to prove that to you from Scripture, but you're the Sunday night crowd. Surely you know that. Verse 3, and he humbled you. How? He let you hunger and fed you. With manna. Clearly there is some connection. I'll show you some other texts here in a minute. There is clearly a connection in God's world between hunger and humility. Now, as I read through this verse, I'm sure that it rang a bell to you, right? It immediately took your mind to the two passages in the New Testament. Matthew 4.4 and Luke 4.4. Isn't it convenient? That's, I've not found another place in Scripture where the, ad the address perfectly matched up like that amongst the synoptics. But Matthew 4.4 4 and Luke 4.4, 4, both of them have Christ quoting this. Man shall not live by bread alone. That's his, that's his testing in the wilderness after his 40-day fast there with the evil one. So clearly there's a connection. There's a connection in Jesus' life between the hunger that he experienced in his fasting and the hunger that Israel experienced there in the wilderness and, and the way in which God used that to humble his people. Psalm 69.10, King David, this is a familiar text. We didn't read it all that many Wednesday nights ago. King David said, I wept and I humbled my soul. How? With fasting. You remember King Ahab, as violent and awful a man as he was, having taken Naboth's vineyard and he received word from the Lord that he would be destroyed. It says that he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his face and he fasted and laid in sackcloth and went about dejected. And the Lord, this is 1 Kings 21, 29, the Lord said, have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? That this fasting in and of itself, it's an expression of humbling. Ezra 8, 29, you remember this is Ezra recounting, they're coming back home from the exile so they could rebuild the temple. And Ezra says, then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava. Why? What was the purpose to the fast? That we might humble ourselves before our God. He goes on to say that, listen, I was embarrassed to ask the kings for their help. We had told them that there was a God in Israel and that that God provides for his people. So I didn't want to go to them for help. And so instead, what did I do? I called the people to fast before God that he might humble us. Go home. Your homework for tonight, I guess, is to go home and read Isaiah 58. It talks about fast, false fasting versus true fasting. It talks about a false humility with which men can approach God. But clearly there's a, there's a connection there between humility and fasting. 
Not just a connection between humility and fasting, but a way in which fasting is God's way of working humility into the lives and the hearts of his people. Now, it's not immediately obvious to us what that might be. Because in, in modern context, we hear the word humility and we immediately think that this is a lower sense of self-esteem. We think of humility as just thinking badly about ourselves. I want you to think about, it's on my mind because I'm going to be preaching part of this this coming week, but Romans 12, whenever Paul is talking about the fact that men ought not to think too highly of themselves, but he doesn't say you need to realize you're a scumbag. You need to realize you're a loser. You need to realize you're worthless. You need to realize you're nothing in the eyes of God. He says, you need to think about yourself with sober judgment. You need to think of yourself the way that God speaks of you. What does God speak of you? The kind of words that God speaks to his people, the kind of work that he'll do in your life through fasting that brings this humility. What will it be? It'll be contrition. It'll be a broken heart mixed with incredible confidence, an incredible sense of love and compassion and mercy and just overawed with who God is and what he has still yet done in your life. You think right, rational thoughts based on who God's revealed you to be. That that's a better picture of humility than you need to realize you're a real loser. And if you think about going back to the Sermon on the Mount, you think about the Beatitudes and all the marks of those who will inherit the kingdom of God. Those are all marked by humility, aren't they? Meekness and poverty and spirit and being one who is mournful. This is, this is a humble kind of man. And, you, and a man can't make himself humble, can he? Any of you that have ever read the screw tape letters, you know that one of Wormwood's favorite tactics was to make a man think about how humble he is. That's the nature of humility. The minute you pat yourself on the back for being humble, you've lost. You can't, you can't will your way to humility. Trust me. Every elementary school teacher I've ever had has told me I needed to humble myself. It didn't work. Only God can bring a man to humility. But again, it isn't thinking badly of myself. It's thinking rightly of him and then seeing who I am in him. And somehow, somehow God's doing that through fasting. He's creating in us this kind of heart. It's the kind of heart that inherits the kingdom of heaven. The kind of heart that marks yourself out as one who is a son of God, a peacemaker. How do those things happen through fasting? God says he does it. I think he does it in part. By forcing us to ask the question, who is my God? Who do I run to? Who do I serve? Who do I rely upon? Who am I willing to obey? See, hunger shows our dependence upon God. This, 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 or our dependence upon ourselves and upon tangible things. First Peter 1 Peter 1.5, he calls us to humble ourselves. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. So at the proper time, he might exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. That there's a picture of humility that includes taking everything that is mine and throwing it. Casting is a chunking. It's a heaving. You ever thrown a medicine ball before? You don't throw it like a baseball. It's a two-handed kind of thing that takes your whole body and you twist and chunk it. It's a picture of that. I don't want these anymore. And I'm chunking them at the feet of Christ Jesus. That's the picture of humility. How does he do this through fasting? Because I'm not going to worry about providing for my own needs. It's, if you've never fasted before, I mean, if you've never gone through this before, look, I, I didn't mean to mock people that say, is this actually safe? Because we've been convinced that it's not. What did your mom tell you since you were a little boy? You got to eat. What did your grandmother tell you every time you went to her house? You look skinny. You better eat. We've convinced ourselves that if we don't do this thing, if we don't go rushing to the table three times a day, don't get our three square meals a day, I'm going to die. So we're entrusting ourselves to God. I think he does the same thing to some degree with sleep. Why did he make us where we have to sleep? For one, to remind us that the world keeps turning even while we're unconscious. It was still here when I got up. But also, we're entrusting ourselves to him. My eyes are closed. Who do you obey? It's going to reveal who you obey pretty quickly. Philippians 3.18, after talking about the, the, the surpassing worth of Christ Jesus and how everything else is just, it's just nothing. It's just loss. It's just it's stuff. It's dumb. He says, 
Philippians 3.18, for many of whom I have told you and now tell you even with tears, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. What marks out men who are enemies of the cross of Christ? Their end is destruction and their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Do you want to know why babies grow up the way that they do, believing they're the center of the universe? Because all they have to do is cry and everybody in the house jumps too. They cry and everybody does everything in their power to figure out what does this baby need. I've come to the conclusion that it's no wonder my boss think my belly thinks it's the boss. It's no wonder my gut thinks that it's my God. All it has to do is grumble and I jump too. He doesn't even have to grumble. One of the things that will happen through fasting is you realize, I don't think I've ever actually felt hungry. It doesn't even have to grumble and feel hunger pains. I just got to think something looks good. And I hop too. I send the clear signal to myself and to the Lord and to my belly that it is God and not him. I want you to think about what Adam's sin was. He, he, he says here, right, that Man does not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. The thing is, look, I'm not going to obey the desires of my eyes. I'm not going to obey my belly as God. I'm not going to obey bread as necessary as it is for the sustenance of life. I'm going to listen to the word of God and trust him and him alone. That will be my bread. Go back to the Garden of Eden and what happened there? Adam listened to his eyes and he listened to his belly and he didn't listen to his God. He proved in that moment that his eyes, the man wasn't hungry. He was in a garden full of food. But he listened to his eyes and what seemed good in his own eyes, and he doubted the promises of God. When you fast, particularly when you fast for an extended period of time, you will find that your belly does not like not being the boss. My belly does not like being the boss. Do you know how bad it was, how unfair it was of you people to line these halls with donuts this morning when I was going to get up here and preach about fasting? And you left them here, Dylan McDaniels. He's not even here. Seth sent a note. He left them sitting out here. So I couldn't go to the bathroom. I had to sit in my office needing to go to the restroom because I knew if I went out there, I'm going to eat those donuts. Because my belly doesn't like not being the boss. And I'm not in the middle of fast right now, but it just didn't feel right to eat half a dozen donuts and then talk about this. <laughs> You'll learn. I've learned. Again, this isn't about willpower. This isn't about strength and, and self-fortification. You're going to learn pretty quickly. And he humbles us through that. You go without food for any period of time and you realize... You realize how entitled you feel. Whenever I'm, whenever I'm fasting, all of a sudden, everybody should get out of my way on the roads. Everybody should do their best around me not to anger me. Nobody should say anything that might be offensive. I, I, I reveal. I reveal how much my belly has become my God. I, I kneel down three, four, five times a day. What do Muslims pray? Five times a day? Five times a day, they kneel and they pray to their God. How many times a day do I kneel and I pray to my God? I serve my God. I appease my God. I jump through hoops to take care of my God. I fantasize about my God. So when we fast and we withhold that, we say, I will not serve you. I will not honor you. You're not the boss of me. We find ourselves humbled under the hand of God and trusting ourselves to him. I'll just touch, I'll just, this is, just touch this for a second, okay? You realize, though, he was, he was talking to his people, Israel. He's talking about all his provision and how he did. He showed up. He, he, didn't, he didn't force them to go long. He allowed them to hunger, and then he provided manna from heaven that they got tired of. But then he made this promise. Look, I'm leading you to something more. I'm leading you to this good land, and... You know what occurred to me this evening is, or this afternoon as I was reading back through that second half and all those various foods that he was listing out, uh, uh, wheat and barley and vine and figs. I love figs. 
pomegranates and olive trees and honey. And I wonder if they had any stinky cheese to put the honeycomb on top of to eat. All these things. You realize that there was an entire generation of people that had never eaten any of that? Honey. Pomegranates. Some of these people had never tasted this stuff. He said, I'm promising something that's so much better. I've given you a little something here in the wilderness and it sustains you. But I'm promising you something that's so much better. Would you long for that? Would you live on my word and trust me for that? That's part of what he does through fasting. He sharpens our affections. And this is another sermon for another day. We're going to come to the story. I think next week we might look at um, the, 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 the woman, the old woman in uh, Luke 2, Anna. That was there. It said night and day she was there with prayer and fasting. I don't think she actually went 86 years without eating. But it's constantly that was the pattern of her life. Why? Because she was looking forward to the redemption of Israel. Her and Simeon. Simeon was looking forward to the consolation of Israel. He couldn't be consoled by anything this world had to offer. He knew there was something more that was promised. That's the thing that sustains us in this. It's not just I go without food and then... It's I trust there's greater food. I trust there's a greater promise. I trust that as he humbles me under his hand through this fast, that he will heighten my affections for that day. So that's our first swing at fasting. We'll come back. I pray you'll come back next week and we'll take another look. Father, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you for the gift of food. Father, we recognize that life is not always about fasting, that there are plenty of feasts in Scripture, that we don't just wait for eternity to feast, that there are appropriate times here and now for your people to sit down and eat good food and drink good drink and enjoy good fellowship in your presence. As a matter of fact, it seems to me, Father, in your word that fasting is, while it is common, it is the exception and not the norm. The norm is eating. And enjoying your good gifts to your glory as an act of worship. And so we thank you for food. We thank you that you made food taste good and that you gave us taste buds to enjoy it. But we also thank you for this promise in your word that if we would abstain for a season. Entrusting ourselves to you. That you would humble us. That you would change us and mold us and shape us. So Father I pray for these people as some of them. Maybe for the first time or considering what you would have them to do in this particular area. I pray that you would fix their hearts on you and on your kingdom and on the promise of eternity. That they would count it a joy. Even as it is physically trying, they would count it a joy to commune with you through prayer and fasting. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray.